Hey everyone, I'm Will Fulton, and this is Thrillist Best Podcast. So we're on the precipice of launching Season 2 of the podcast, and we'll be back to dropping a new episode every Thursday. If you want to help us out, you can leave a review wherever you listen. Every week, I'm going to start reading some of the reviews and shouting people out. Also, a quick warning, I'm now recording this pod from my kitchen in Brooklyn, New York, so if you hear anything weird, it's either my fridge or my stomach or one of the many, many birds who decided to social distance right by my window. Okay, on to the episode. Thanks. One of my own personal heroes is, and always has been, Fred Rogers. I was born in Pittsburgh. I met him a few times. One time at the airport, he held the door open for my grandmother and then winked at her. That was funny. We bring that up a lot. And one of his most famous lines, of course, one that continuously pops up in times of tragedy is, quote, When I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, Look for the helpers. You'll always find people who are helping. My own mother would repeat that quote to me, and it's something I've always tried to do. So today, that's what we're doing. We're looking for the helpers, specifically in the restaurant world. We're talking to people who started fundraisers for undocumented workers that are struggling to find income and support right now. We're talking to the James Beard award-winning chef Abe Conlin. He and his business partner from Fat Rice decided to close their restaurant and turn it into kind of a relief kitchen for service workers. We're talking to a D.C.-based distiller who switched from making rum to producing hand sanitizer for the community, and a strip club owner who managed to keep his dancers employed with, uh, let's just call it a bold new idea. But first up, something we can do right now, all of us, is support local restaurants on life support that are staying open by continuing to offer takeout and delivery. I've had some conversations with friends and family around the risk of coronavirus transmission from receiving takeout or delivery food, So I reached out to Jason Tetro, perhaps better known as the germ guy on the internet. He's a microbiologist and an immunologist who has worked extensively with pathogens like SARS, avian flu, and Zika virus. And now he's helping us understand COVID-19. Here's our call. Hello. Hey, Jason. Hey, how are you? How are you? Oh, it's been a day. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my lord, it's been crazy. As you might know, I am not a scientist per se. I consider myself a scientist in some respects, but I wanted to talk to someone who knew. So really the question is, can the virus be transmitted through delivery food? Should we worry about ordering takeout and delivery? Um, And if so, are there ways to mitigate that worry? You know, I'm not really that worried. And, And it comes from a number of reasons. But the first one happens to be, uh, this virus is a respiratory virus. And so um, when we normally talk about uh, you know, pa- pathogens coming through the food, um, and, and as a result of that, uh, I think people are sort of wondering if it's the same thing with COVID-19. Well, no, it's not. This is a coronavirus. Um, now, we have heard that there may be uh, the potential for some gastrointestinal problems, but that's usually after the virus has had you know, several days growing inside of you. So really, I wouldn't be too worried. Now, the second thing is that when you look at viruses, uh, they're they're not particularly stable at very warm temperatures. So if you happen to be ordering a pizza, well, a pizza is going to be pretty hot. So it's a very low likelihood that uh, coronavirus would be on the pizza, but even if it was, it would be dead. So I think from that perspective, there's not really that much to worry about. Now, I understand that people may also be concerned about 
you know, the, the takeout boxes or anything along those lines. Well, most of the time, uh, they come in some kind of packaging. And that packaging really is there to prevent those respiratory droplets from the driver and, and people who are packing it from getting onto your food. So there's really only a very, very small amount of time where there's exposure of what you're going to be touching with what the person is delivering to you. Mm -hmm. And I think in that context, if you still are concerned, well, you can always wipe down the surfaces before you open up the boxes. Right. That's what I figure too. I mean, like, especially now, a lot of restaurants and delivery services are opting for the no contact where they just kind of leave it outside your door, like a milkman, for mm -hmm. example. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and the other thing they have to realize, and I know that this is sort of an indirect benefit of going with takeout, um, in order for you to cook at home, you kind of need food. Right, exactly. And in order for you to get food, you kind of have to go to the grocery store. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about what you've seen, but for me, when I go to the grocery store, people are more interested in the groceries than they are in the social distancing. Yeah. So there's a greater likelihood of the virus coming into the home through you by going to the grocery store than through the delivery person taking the uh, food out of that bag and giving it to you by hand or just leaving it on your doorstep. Right. So I think in that context, if you truly want to avoid as much of the virus as possible, then going the takeout route is probably better. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, where are you isolating yourself right now? I'm at home. I'm in Edmonton. Uh, I'm in a condo and most of what I do now is in a my second bedroom, which I've converted into sort of a studio. Right. You know, and especially when talking about restaurants, it's really the only line of business they have. So it's super important to to support them. Um, what's your go-to takeout order these days? Oh, Korean. Korean? I love my Korean food. Oh, yeah. So when you get a delivery order or to-go order and you want to wipe it down, kind of like you said, just to be cautious, yeah. uh, what should we be using to wipe these things down? Well, thankfully, the coronavirus can actually be killed with soap. So, I mean, yeah. even just a, a little bit of dish detergent on, on, a, on, a, on a cloth and you wipe it down, that, that's going to be fine. And, it, and you're going to have to rinse it because you're probably not going to be um, you know, touching it so much. Mm -hmm. uh, if you have disinfectant wipes, absolutely. But I would probably keep those for something a little bit more, um, you know, that has a greater potential of having some kind of virus on it. Got it. Okay. Okay, great. Um, Jason, this was awesome. Thank you for shedding some light here. And I hope that sometime soon, if you haven't already, you order your favorite Korean to-go dish. All right, Jason. Thanks. I appreciate it. Hey, no problem. You take care. Okay, bye. Sean Bolden owns Lucky Devil in Portland. It's a strip club that also serves some pretty solid food, as strip clubs in Portland are known to do. He, like so many other business owners, needed to get creative in order to keep his employees on the payroll. What he did is... Well, that's pretty interesting. Here's our call. Hi, this is Sean. Hey, this is Will from Thrillist. Hi, how's it going, man? What's up? How are you? I'm I'm good. It's just uh, getting ready for the chaos for tonight. Yeah, uh, same. Except there's no chaos. I'm just sitting at home. Sean, I have a lot of questions. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> I have a shit ton of answers <laughs> okay so i guess i guess first off um can you tell me a little bit about lucky devil lounge what in portland what you guys are normally like so we're really small strip club so we only hire i mean we only have about uh about six girls working each shift 
Uh, we only have one stage, very small, intimate place. It's like a boutique strip club. I'm not just saying this because my mom listens to this podcast, but I don't really know how many strippers or, or dancers are usually at uh, average strip clubs. Like, So six is not a lot. No, no. You're talking like the Vegas strip clubs have like 200 girls working. Oh, my God. I mean, we're kind of like the neighborhood strip clubs. You know, we're like the cheers with tits. And, you know, obviously I want to talk to you about um, the new service that you've been doing since the pandemic has swept the nation. Uh, as I understand it, your idea kind of started out as almost a joke that you made on social media. Can you just explain, <laughs> <laughs> just really start from the beginning for us. I'm the owner. I bartend once a night. After work, me and the, me and the, my cocktail waitress will sit around and have fun and bullshit about the night and come up with jokes and stuff. So we started coming up with alternate uh, delivery driver services. So, you know, first we were like, you know, wouldn't it be cool to have Duber, you know, a driver picks you up, smokes you out, drives you to Seven Eleven. Um, You know, another one we were thinking would be fun would be like shampooer. So you drive while they shampoo your hair. And then I was like, how about Boober? And I first said, uh, you know, topless driver picks you up and drives you to the strip club. Okay. Is that legal? It's legal in the state of Oregon because uh, naked, uh, nudity is protected by uh, freedom of speech. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> God bless Oregon. It's in, Oregon it's, in, it's in the Oregon Constitution. You know, as long as you're not... Uh, your intent isn't to arouse, you could walk down the street naked and not get arrested. I mean, you're talking about starting as a joke, but when did you start being like, you know, actually, maybe I could do something like this for real? So all of the bars, you know, we're seeing this, like the domino effect of, of the, the big venues closing all the way down to us, and we're seeing it all around us. So I had to go to my bar and go, hey, guys, it's, you know, 7 o'clock, we're done. We're just going to call it a night. And everybody's just looking at me. They were in shock. They're like, how do I pay my bills? How do I pay my rent? Basically, you know, these girls rely on 100% of their income comes from doing this. And they're looking to me like, what do we do? And I'm just looking at them like, I have no clue. I don't know what the fuck the government is going to do about this. So I started to think about it and go, well, shit, why don't we just try to do Postmates or, um, or Uber Eats or, or any of the delivery food services because we've never tapped into that market. So that Monday night, I threw out a tweet on our, tw on our Twitter, and I said, uh, hey, we're working on keeping our staff employed, and um, we're going to start this uh, food delivery service. And I just threw it out there I just, I, just for fun with topless girls, and we're going to call it Boober. And tweeted it out just for fun. For this whatever. was this was and the stage sudden, where you were still joking. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So this was yeah, this was a joke. We had no plans to do, do do this at all. And then all of a sudden, I just see this retweet, retweet. Like, hey, how do I get this over here? Do you guys go to Salem? Do you guys go to Newburgh? Do you guys go here or there? And I'm just like, holy crap! People want this. They are, you know, they can't get this anywhere. You. You know, you can't go to strip clubs for a month, you know. So to have a, a dancer come to your door and drop off food and, and pasties, it's like, 
pretty freaking amazing. I start seeing this feedback. I'm like, man, we might be able to do this. So Tuesday night, we just kind of like slapped together a skeleton crew with, uh, with some cooks, some, some security guys being drivers yeah. or bartenders answering a phone. And, you know, me and a, my business partner on our laptop just just saying, hey, call in for your order tonight. We'll deliver it to your doorstep with a dancer. And the first night we did like, I think we did like 30, 35 orders. And, I was, and then we were like, this is crazy. Yeah, this and, is, and you had crazy. never done... <laughs> You had never done delivery in any in any capacity <laughs> no, before. No, not at all. So okay, so someone orders it. What what are they actually getting? You know, so so what food are you offering, and how exactly is it delivered? I mean, we've got quite a variety of food, and you know, people come into our bar just to eat, right? And and now that they they have this service available to get delivered to their house with one of the dancers that works for us in pasties, it's like, it's like a dream come true. Yeah. Okay. And do, do they, they would just walk, you know, I was a pizza delivery uh, person for a few <laughs> months back in my college days. Hey, yeah, totally. <laughs> so, so please, I know how it works. I was wearing a shirt most of the time though. But so do they just walk <laughs> up and deliver the food and then um, just, you know, say thank you and maybe get a, a signature and leave or do they stay and interact for a while two dancers look where it's at and then they drive it out and then uh once they get there the two girls get out of the car somebody with the escort security guy walk up to the door and you know most of the time when the girls are walking up to the door they're like they've got their door open and they've got their their cell phones out and they're like Oh my God, here comes Boober, you know? <laughs> yeah. So when you first brought this idea up to your employees, um, you know, obviously they were still reeling about potentially not being able to work for an extended period. Were most of your dancers, most of your performers uh, excited and rece- like receptive to the idea of being able to do this? Oh yeah. They're all, they all want to work. They all want to make money and if they want to get out of their house. They want to interact with people. They want to see people smiling faces when they bring up the food, you know, and it's, you know, it's, uh, you know, our, our business model already is an escape from reality. Yeah. How many of these orders are you getting per night? I know you've only been doing this for a little bit, but just kind of on average. Um, I would say the, the first night we did about 30. Yeah. The next night we did about 50. I think last night we did maybe a little over 50 and then tonight I'm thinking 70, 80. I mean, we have extra drivers. We have extra dancers. We have uh, the pre-orders are coming in already. That's amazing. That's, that's amazing. Um, What kind, I know this is a hard question to ask and maybe answer, but like what kinds of people are, ordering this service you know is it i i I, listen this is a judgment-free zone and i would never judge anyone that would go to a strip club or work at a strip club but you know are are these the stereotypical people that you would think would be ordering this oh it's 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 everything so you know it's the guy who's having his 40th birthday that his girlfriend uh surprised him with this like um it's almost like a a stripper gram you know it's but they're bringing food too so uh, we had a guy who was, it was his 40th birthday. Um, we had this really weird lady 
who, when we answered the door, she was standing there butt naked, laid on the ground, and then spread eagle. And then her husband, like, was, like, videotaping. And uh, the girls just kind of dropped off the food and was like, thank you for choosing Boober. <laughs> Is this something that you feel like you will uh, permanently institute into your business? Oh, absolutely. We just... Uh, you know, we just created the playbook for doing this. And if it makes sense financially, then yeah, you know, and it's in every day, every night, it's morphing into a different thing. You know, we're, we're starting to do theme nights. I think on Sunday, all the girls are going to dress up like nuns. Um, we're going to have two, uh, two ladies that are dominatrixes that are going to come to your door and crack a whip and maybe bank the guy or I don't know, maybe we'll wait <laughs> till afterwards. But okay. the sky's the limit for this, and this is just the beginning. Okay, yeah. Um, well, this was interesting. Yeah, I'm I'm trying, you know, and it's like, you know, that you know, as right now we're you know the business model right now, you know, we're losing money, but we're putting money in our pockets for our employees, you know, and we'll we'll do this as long as we can do it, and you know, it's like, you know, throughout the whole all the madness that's going on out there, it's like this is just a way to kind of you know, flip it upside down and say, hey, let's try to do something positive out of this because, you know, this is going to pass. Thank you for talking to us and taking time out. I know you're really busy, so we really appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Cool. Thanks a lot. Zach Mack is a certified Cicerone, which is basically like a beer sommelier. He's a beer writer, and he owns ABC Beer Co. in New York's East Village. He's also been on this pod many, many times. Like so many bar owners around the world, his business is in a state of flux, but he remains open and he actually turned his bar into a little market for the neighborhood, which is pretty cool. Here's what he has to say. What's up, man? Zach Mack, how are you? Good. Can you hear me well? I can hear you great. What's what's going on right now with ABC Beer Co.? Um, we're very, very lucky. So we're, we're basically allowed to sell beer to go to customers, which is keeping our lights on. We're open seven days a week, so obviously without our... Without our bar revenue, we're seeing a huge drop in income and revenues, but um, it's, it's better than nothing at all. And I feel very fortunate that we're still able to do this and not have to really change or impact my employees' lives outside of them having to, you know, work in, in, in strange circumstances and take extra precautions. For sure. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about what is a quote-unquote non-essential and essential business in the government's eyes. Do you have any insight? Are, are liquor stores, beer stores, will those count as essential businesses? I mean, I know my own standpoint in that arena, but um, <laughs> would you be able to stay open when a mandate like that comes down? So, yeah, we, we just found this out in the last, like, two hours, which was very confusing to me. I was losing a little sleep over it. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the license that we have uh, would designate us more on the side of tavern, which would put us under, you know, a different designation, but uh, the governor just clarified that liquor stores are considered to be essential and aren't going to be forced to close down. But we've also, because of the, the increased demand on certain products, we're picking up stuff that we don't normally carry. We're selling our, our own, um, our, our personal, our private stock uh, that we use for the bar anyway, of toilet paper. Uh, we just yeah. put in an order to pick up things like dry pasta, which we already sell a little bit of, but we're increasing that a ton. Things like canned tomatoes, canned tuna, um, stuff that people can really stock up on at home that have, I've seen personally when I'm out shopping have been picked clean off the shelves. We're stocking butter. We're stocking uh, very basic things that people may find in shortages around just to make sure 
that if something runs out down the block, people in the neighborhood won't have to go without something they want or need. Uh, and to just do our part in a, in a time when things are feeling really uncertain and kind of weird. Of course. Yeah. I mean, what kind of measures are you taking at ABC and like, what can people expect from other places like ABC? So what we've done, and we've done this since the, the first order came down on closing the back bar, was we've limited the number of people who are allowed into the shop at any given time to make sure that there's ample space for people to properly distance themselves from each other. Um, we're, we're telling people to bring in their own bags as usual, as of, not actually as of a couple of weeks ago, the new rule in New York anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this way, they'll, they'll be able to pack their own bags and, and there will be limited touching. We're obviously sanitizing the beginning uh, pretty much on the hour, uh, just running through and wiping down any surfaces like handles on doors or on fridges and making sure that uh, those are those are staying sanitized. And my staff are wearing gloves just constantly. Anything they have to touch, we know that we can do certain things to protect ourselves and to protect our employees. While they can maintain their livelihoods, we're going to do everything we possibly can. And the second it becomes clear we can't do that, you know, we'll stop. But yeah, for now, we're just doing everything we're told is the best way to do it. Yeah, definitely. Um, how are other bars in your neighborhood and around the city dealing with these closings? Um, it's honestly, it's I'm really unfortunate because it's been very dire. Uh, if you don't have the to-go food like system that's already in place or program already in place, there's a really good chance they just haven't been open. I honestly don't know what the what the future looks like for a lot of these businesses. Fortunately, I have seen in the East Village, there's a few places that are offering drinks to go by a window, mm-hmm. which is really, really interesting. Um, one of my favorite dive bars nearby has been doing that. And on that note, during during this period, while we're locked down um, and while these regulations are in place, what can we as consumers do to support our local spots, even, even if we're talking about specifically supporting people in the service industry like our favorite bartenders? But, you know, it's really, that's good you asked that because I was having this conversation with another friend who works in the service industry recently. And there's going to come a point very soon where you just can't give $100 to your favorite restaurants in your neighborhood. Everyone's doing the thing where they're going online and buying gift cards, uh, which is something that's really great for restaurants. Right. It shows the cash up immediately, something that you can use down the line and, you know, you're not losing any money on it. Um, but I think a, a huge thing would just be driving awareness and making sure people realize that this is like a huge, huge issue for 99% of the businesses they patronize because as someone who went through Sandy, I know that if you don't get that money quick, bills rack up fast. It's just different because, you know, like you said, that was that was a one night thing and um, people were able to, able to recover and, you know, go back out. And if places were able to open, we were able to frequent them. But now it's like, you know, this is so long and so drawn out and it's, it's just such a different situation. So I'm trying to stay positive while staying realistic and thinking long term because it's not, you know, two months from now we have to worry about it. It's not just two months, I should say, that we have to worry about it six months and a year from now when, when things are still shaky and, and bills still have to be paid and business doesn't come back the way it's supposed to be. So it's it's a lot to grapple with and I the full force of it force of it hasn't really hit me yet, but yeah. I'm just trying to think of it in, in bigger terms so we can can take action. This was all great. Uh, I have one more question that to try to wrap things up with something positive. Uh, what are you personally drinking during all of this? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's a good question. Um, so my uh, for the last few days, I've been drinking. Um, we just got a fresh drop of other half beer that I really, you know, I treated myself to. But I also was drinking. Um, I got a, a sour IPA from New Belgium the other day that came in the mail, and it tasted fantastic. Um, my girlfriend and I have our birthdays a day apart. We just celebrated with a bunch of gin martinis last night, which totally counts. 
So <laughs> anything and everything, really. Yeah, as you should. And also, happy belated birthday, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, we'll get drinks after uh, when when we can see each oh, other. Oh yeah, definitely. Looking looking forward to it. Me too, Zach. And I'm I hope that um you know all your employees stay safe and ABC stays open as long as it can. Keep serving the community, which you've done for so long. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. See you next time. Bye. Reed Walker is the co-founder of Cotton and Reed, Washington, D.C.'s first rum distillery. You've probably seen spirit makers in the news transitioning to making hand sanitizer. They were one of the first to embrace the idea, and they're not only doing it to stay afloat, but also serve the community. Here's their story. Hello, this is Reed. Hey, Reed, this is Will from Thrillist. Hey, Will, how's it going? What's up, how are you? Going great, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. Um, thanks for coming on and talking to us. I appreciate it. Uh, Reed, I haven't had the pleasure of trying your rum personally, but what do you like most about it? What I love most about our rum is that it changes people's perceptions of rum. I think some people have one or two maybe bad experiences they don't like to think about, or they perceive rum as being an overly sweet spirit. And so we view our job as changing people's perspectives on rum as a category. Okay, cool. So, you know, I think a lot of people are focusing on restaurants and bars, uh, rightfully so, being affected by the pandemic. But I know all of those issues trickle up to breweries and distilleries, too. Uh, How are you guys faring and how is this all affecting you? Well, it's tough. Uh, Most of our revenue came from our bar and tasting room. So, of course, we had to shut that, that down. And then the other large portion of our income came from selling rum to uh, bars and restaurants um, in uh, the D.C., Maryland, and Massachusetts areas. Um, A very, very, very small fraction of our sales comes from selling to liquor stores. Mm. And so those, of course, are our only remaining um, customers. And we have 16 employees and 17 contractors that were relying on us for um, their income for them and their families. Um, and so what we wanted to do um, when the pandemic hit was attempt to figure out how we can help the community. And so we were already making hand sanitizer the last month or so. Uh, we wanted to make sure that our customers felt safe inside the building. Sure. So we had dispensers of handmade hand sanitizer. And so when the new regulations came out that all bars and restaurants needed to close, um, we used that opportunity to shift our production floor from a rum distillery to a hand sanitizing manufacturing company. And we're giving away a free bottle of hand sanitizer with the purchase of rum. Uh, we've also donated service industry members in the D.C. area. Uh, we've also donated hand sanitizer to the local fire department. And today we got a request from the local police department that they're out of hand sanitizer and that they need some as well. So we're ramping up production. This next week, we'll be able to make 4,000 bottles of hand sanitizer. Wow. uh, Much of which we'll donate or give away for free um, with the purchase of a bottle of rum. And thankfully, our community has been incredibly, our customers have been incredibly supportive. That's amazing. So what's the difference between distilling rum and distilling hand sanitizer? Yeah, great question. I mean, hand sanitizer, the, the active ingredient, so to speak, is ethanol. And so any spirit uh, producer who has alcohol on hand that is above 60% alcohol is able to fairly easily make hand sanitizer. So um, as the pandemic hit, 
75% of the roughly 2,000 craft distilleries across the United States immediately started producing hand sanitizer as their public good, yeah. their public duty. Yeah. Did you ever think that you would uh, uh, transition off into this type of a business from your distillery? Certainly not. I <laughs> never imagined that I would make hand sanitizer. No. But I also never imagined that there would be a pandemic that caused me to let go of all my staff. So right. um, adapt or die, um, as morbid as that sounds. And so for us, uh, we're doing what we can to keep our staff employed. And we're doing what we can to give back to the community, in particular, um, the local EMS and uh, police department. Cool. Well, Reed, thanks so much for talking to us. And I wish Cotton would be the best. Yes, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing some good news stories uh, in a time of darkness. Yeah. And um, thank you for getting the word out about um, hand sanitizer and that it is actually is effective and um, keeping you safe. De- definitely. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Cool. Bye. Have a good day. Fat Rice in Chicago's Logan Square neighborhood is run by the James Beard Award-winning chef Abe Conlin and Adrian Lowe. She's the co-owner and director of operations. At the beginning of this pandemic, they decided to launch a program offering pay-as-you-wish relief kits full of uncooked meals for those in the service industry who were struggling. Now they opened it up for anyone who's struggling and anyone who needs help. Here's our call. Hello? Hey, this is Will from Thrillist. Hi, how are you? Thanks for talking to us. I know you guys are super busy, so I appreciate you taking some time out. Yeah. Um, I am going to catch in Abe on the call. Cool. Can, I, can everybody hear? I can definitely hear. I can definitely hear. Hey, Will. Hey, Abe. What's going on? Not much, man. How are you? How are you? Again, you know, I think to Adrian, thanks so much for coming on. Um, I know it's really busy for you. So, yeah, let's get right to it. So, first off, can you tell me a little bit about Fat Rice? Yeah, I mean, you know, originally when we opened, we, you know, served the food in Macau, which kind of on its simplest, uh, simplest form is a Portuguese-Chinese fusion. And so we've been open for about seven and a half years. Um, when we opened, we had a staff of like 15 and now we have a staff of like close to 70. So over the course of the pandemic, you decided to temporarily, uh, shut down fat rice and open up what you're calling the fat rice community relief kitchen. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing and why you took it upon yourself to do something like this? You know, with things happening day to day, hour to hour, it was like your decisions of like kind of business plans were trying to changing, you know, by the, by the hour. Then as of, I think, Monday uh, or Sunday. No dine-in. No dine-in. You can only do takeout, and you could only do delivery. And at that point, you're not a delivery or pickup restaurant. Transitioning from that to a delivery-based system was not, was, not our, was not our business model. Yeah. So we had to immediately make the decision and say, no, we, we cannot, uh-huh. you know, even, you know, we cannot keep employing all of our employees. And even more importantly, I think the reason why we chose to do, to do the thing that we um, decided to do with the, with the Barrett Community Relief Kitchen was because we saw that there were too many risk variables within the delivery and pickup model. That, that's not worth any form of risk in that the team, we, we all looked at each other and said, no, this has to stop and we need to do whatever is in our power to be able to essentially slow this 
we don't want to do delivery. We don't want to do pickup. There's too many risk variables involved. Let's do these prepared. So we had some prepared foods and then some meal kits where it's like, okay, some raw marinated chicken with some, with some vegetables, some carrots, some cabbage, some mushrooms, et cetera. And we said, okay, we're going to encourage people to take this. It was three um, plus meals for two people um, to essentially encourage people to cook and stay at home to flatten the curve. We want to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. <laughs> okay, we're going to say this is, the, this is the chicken and tofu mushroom soup kit. And so the idea, again, for us was, okay, properly prepared foods, under with a minimal staff who aren't showing any symptoms who are being temp checked first uh, when they get there and when they leave also the staff is committed to not going anywhere going home directly after work and not interacting with anybody essentially and if they do interact with uh, people who may be showing symptoms or even if not that they bow out for the for, for 14 days essentially. So because we want to make sure that we are doing our, you know, we are being responsible when it comes to preparing the food uh, that essentially is going into the, into these boxes. But the fail safe is that when you're at home, you bring the, you bring the food up to temp. In theory, Mm -hmm. you should, you should be safe. I, I think that those are all valid points, um, and I, I really respect your, respect your opinion, and I appreciate you being honest. Um, are, are you saying that the model of having um, uncooked meals that you provide people, do you think that's a model that uh, most restaurants can follow successfully? You know, I mean, I know that so many restaurants right now are relying solely on pickup and delivery, are you saying that, um, you know, in your opinion, can they make this work kind of following the same blueprint that you created with your relief kits? I mean, I, I think, I, I mean, I can only say what works for us. We are looking at how do we continue uh, um, to keep doing these meal kits. I think generally that restaurants are have the basic infrastructure to Receive, process, and um, distribute, and to and to and to, dis- and to distribute food. Um, you know, for but it has to be it has to be the right thing for each restaurant. I you know I can't I can't tell every restaurant to now take all these this food that they were normally making and put it into and put it into recipe kits and have people make that at home. Sure. We just personally feel that that is that is the that is the safest route because mm-hmm. you know if you're getting if you're getting three meals a day to your house delivered that you are that you are not cooking and heating up yourself that's three times that you could be at risk per day of contracting this thing. Mm-hmm. I know that's fucking scary, and I hate <laughs> to say that again. It's it's about reducing it's about reducing variables. So all these produce companies or meat companies or whatever fish companies. They now have products that they need to move, and so they are willing to donate it. You don't know if when they're moving the box, they sneeze on it. You don't. You know what I'm saying? So if there's still a lot of protocols and a lot of systems that need to be developed, and we are working on those systems and developing those systems to the best of the, of our ability. 
right? We don't want to just say, okay, everybody just dump everything into a box and send it. Right. Because, right. because there, ha- there has to be, there has to be, there has to be protocols and there has to be, you know, safety guidelines and people have to then be able to trust. I do think that first off, um, you know, you, fat rights should be lauded as a company that is being very selfless and taking upon uh, yourself to be overly cautious in a time where, you know, as you said, so many people have not been cautious at all, and it's to the detriment of everyone else. Um, I will say that I, I do believe that there are some there are some ways that we uh, receiving food at home can kind of mitigate the risks ourselves. Uh, you know, it's 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 a really touchy subject, and uh, you know, ethically, is it ethical for us to ask and even pay for delivery drivers to come out um, and to break isolation to work at a time like this? But you know, there are ways to mitigate some of those variables. We're never going to be able to nip everything in the bud, but um, there are ways to clean and sterilize things that we receive. I mean, if you get a pizza, what do you do with the hot pizza? Do you, do you, do you leave the pizza outside for 24 hours until, until, until the box is decontaminated, or do you open the pizza box with gloves and then take it off and put it onto a sheet pan? I mean, I'm, just, I'm asking you because I'm interested. No. There, what are the things that we can do at home to mitigate those things? I do not... Uh, Leave the pizza outside. Although I am a fan of cold pizza, I will say that. But no, I don't. I, th- <laughs> I think the packaging. Is- no, I'm interested. I'm, no. in- I'm, I'm genuinely interested in no. what you're saying. No, this, no, I mean, that, that's a great and, and valid comment. I think that um, it, the packaging itself, uh, right, you know, as you know, the COVID-19 can live on surfaces for days. Um, but I do, right. I, I don't know if food itself, I think at this time right now, there's not any evidence of food being associated with COVID-19 transmission? No, and, and, and I don't think you're going to, I don't think you're going to be able, I don't think you're going to be able to find that evidence, but I will say the way to prove it is for everybody to be quarantined. Mm-hmm. And if they're not showing, if they're not showing symptoms and they're still getting food deliveries and people are still getting sick, then that's, then that's, and again, I'm not saying the food is the enemy here, but it is something to take into consideration. Of course. Yeah, no, and that's why I think that the system you have in place, and um, I think that anyone that orders food and anyone uh, remotely connected to the food industry, the service industry, can only respect uh, the lengths that you guys are going to to ensure that everyone that picks up one of these relief kits from Fat Rice is totally safe and kind of, you know, setting a standard for the industry. So. So I think that's great, and I, I mm-hmm. think I think to that point, um, where do you move forward from here? Is it do you continue with your own mission? Do you try to spread uh, your method of doing things? I think I think both of those things. Again, uh, I think learning every day and um, looking at what we can do to uh, service um, our our communities, because essentially that's what restaurants are. They are cornerstones of communities and we have to look at what uh, the new face of a restaurant actually is Mm -hmm. because it's going to take a very long time for people to start coming back out to restaurants. So this is a, this is a tough question and obviously, you know, feel free not to answer or or defer it, but I think it falls in line with what we've been talking about. Uh, Do you foresee fat rice coming back and coming back into operation and you know, what is the time frame where realistically you guys 
couldn't survive something like no. this? Um, I, I would say, I, I mean, we've been talking about this a lot. Um, yeah. This is not going away anytime soon. Um, Fat Reich, the restaurant, will most likely not return to what it was. What it was. At all. But I don't believe the fat rice will return to the 250 people a night, five days a week, lunch, dinner, bakery, cocktails, wine, full service restaurant until the thing has been squashed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, 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 so the reality is that um, all social gathering places, including restaurants, uh, are changing drastically and will not return unless they're unless we squash squash this thing. Forget flatten the curve, squash the curve. Mm-hmm. Get home, yeah. isolate. You want to go? You want to go to the club? You want to go to a concert? Sit your ass at home right now for fourteen days and do not leave. And then maybe that will exist mm-hmm. on the other side. Definitely, I back now. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're so tied to the restaurant industry, and I hope you don't think it's it's flip for me to say that we're reeling right alongside you guys. I, like you said, of I course. I love to yeah. I love to go to restaurants and bars. It's really my favorite thing to do. So I mean, having a really blunt, honest conversation with someone in this world, someone that's actually taking steps to try to mitigate this in some way, and you know, at the very least, try to help out people that are reeling um, for real is really great. And I just, I want to say one last time how much I respect um, and appreciate everything that you guys are doing. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks. No, thank you. And, and, and we, we know that there are so many industries and, and everything connected to the restaurant, you know, obviously media companies, produce companies and delivery companies, farmers. all of this is our farmers, and you know, be- that's beverage, thing. beverage companies, yeah. you know, yeah. distributors, like, and you know, and, and related and to the restaurant industry, right? We're, we're and a lot of those are small businesses, yeah. And, so. and we're heartbroken, and 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 there's nothing more I'd like to say than yeah, no, in two weeks, dude, everybody come back, everything's going to be fine. But like, that, that's, that, that's, that's not, not real. Not the case. <laughs> yeah. It's not the case. Well, yeah. It's not. It's not that and, and, we, and, and we need and we and we need and we need to and we need to admit our, to ourselves. And I just want to say thank you one more time, and I hope more restaurants follow your lead, and uh, I, I wish you success, however that comes, whenever whenever this can end. And, you know, I hope one day I can make it to Fat Rice on my next trip to Chicago, yeah. whatever that may be, and uh, join you guys for a meal. And we're, and we're going to try our damn just to be there for you. Awesome. All right. Sure. Be safe. One love. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, guys. Bye. Bye. Undocumented workers make up 20% of the restaurant force, according to some estimates. Although there's a lot of people out there that think that number in reality is even higher. And so many of the fundraising efforts in the service industry right now aren't directly helping these individuals. So, we planned on speaking with Trig Brown. He's a chef and partner at the excellent Winsun Restaurant and Bakery in Brooklyn. About the Venmo account they set up to raise funds for undocumented workers. But Trig was very ill, actually. You know, such are the times we live in. We wish him a speedy recovery, obviously, but we still wanted to get the word out about what he's doing. So you can go on Venmo at Winsun. That's at 
W-I-N-S-O-N, and drop a donation if you can. It will go directly to undocumented workers, and anything you can spare would be much appreciated. We also have a bunch of links in our description that can direct you to several resources aimed at helping the service industry right now. I hope after listening to this episode, you are inspired to do what you can and help a little bit too, because, you know, it's a cliche, but every little bit helps, especially right now. Okay, this episode was produced by myself, Chaz Truslow, and Debbie Wong. Research and numerous intangibles by Mia Fasky. Dan Byrne edited and mixed this sucker. I also want to thank Jim D'Amico, Megan Kirsch, Brett Kushner, Emily Feld, and iHeartRadio's Mankesh Hatakudar. We're gearing up for a brand new season. Check us out every Thursday on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope everyone stays safe out there, and I hope you tune in next week. Thanks a lot. Bye.